For the past few weeks, we've been in a study of the book of Judges. And I called it um, Heroes because really the book of Judges is a book about heroic figures in the Old Testament. And as I was growing up in the church, uh, the judges were always heroic to me. You know, Samson had super strength and Ehud was just really sly and sneaky and just amazing, really cool stories. But as I've read through it more recently, and as I think you've probably experienced going through this study with me, there's a lot of disturbing stuff in the book too. It's almost as if these people who were supposed to be so heroic kept getting it wrong. And they kept making bad choices. They kept making mistakes. They kept doing the wrong thing instead of the right thing. And even when they did the right thing, it seems like it happened at the wrong time. And well, today we're going to read the last story in the book. And I want to just call it a dumpster fire. It's a It's a story of one bad thing after another, and people just making bad choices after bad choices. In the midst of it, there's some people who are really authentically trying to follow God, but then they take it a little too far, and it's like, really? Why? And from our perspective, we look at it, and it makes a lot of um, sense that they're doing the wrong thing, but from their perspective... I'm certain they thought they were doing the right thing. You know, that's really what it all comes down to for us, isn't it? We want to be heroic in our lives, and yet quite frequently we don't know the right thing to do. And if we do know the right thing to do, we don't have confidence that we have the ability to do it. And so knowing the right thing, having the confidence and the ability to do the right thing, they so rarely get combined with each other that... I think quite frequently we have opportunities to be heroic that we just don't take because of these other factors. One time that I was truly heroic was the summer of 1995. Now, that's the summer, I told you, when I met my wife and I was heroic on the volleyball court, actually the sand volleyball court in Southern California. I was heroic in getting a house to live in on the beach. That was the summer I decided I wanted to be a beach bum, just living on a beach environment in Southern California. I was heroic in a lot of ways that summer, but really the only thing that summer that really made me feel heroic other than asking Jen on a date and having her say yes and all those things. Uh, One of the things that made me feel truly heroic at the beginning of that summer was when I got a job at Carl's Jr. So Carl's Jr. is a restaurant that is owned by the same company that owns Hardee's. Carl's Jr. and Hardee's are, you know, they both do the famous star. They both have the same star as a logo. I, I don't know which company bought which one out, but back then they were two separate entities, two separate restaurants. Carl's Jr. is in the West Coast. Hardee's is everywhere else, but that's neither here nor there. I got a job at Carl's Jr. and I was so pleased with myself because I had finally landed a job. It took me a month to get a couple jobs down there so I could survive living my beach bum existence. But I remember orientation day when the manager came out and he was training me on the computer system and showing me around the restaurant and all the different kinds of things I would be doing. And he told me a story. He told me a story of his favorite employee of all time. An employee that he loved, but an employee who had recently gone away 
to war or some other military activity. He was in the reserves or the army, I can't remember which, but he was going off to military service and the manager was telling me all about this guy. And so I asked the manager questions because, you know, I'm a competitive guy. And if the manager tells me that this other guy is the best employee he's ever had, well, I'm not going to put up with that. I want to be the best employee that guy has ever had. And so I wanted to learn more about what I needed to do to be the best employee. And so I asked the manager all kinds of questions about what made that other guy so great? What made him so awesome? And he told me. And so by the end of the day, I knew exactly what I needed to do. And for crying out loud, it was fast food. So I knew I had the ability to do it. And I had so much confidence. I made a commitment that day that I would be his next heroic employee. I wanted to be the guy that he told the stories about to the next guy that walked in. And I only had eight weeks to do it. So I had eight weeks left in my time in California to become the best employee this guy had ever experienced. I don't know if I actually accomplished it. And come to think of it, I don't even know if that um, employee was even real. Maybe it was just a story the manager told all his new hires uh, to convince them to work hard. I I don't know. I never met the other employee. All I know is this. At that moment, I felt the possibility of heroism because I knew exactly what I needed to do. And I had the confidence that I could do it. And when those two things come together, man, you can feel heroic. But I imagine for you, like it is for me, 2020 has been an absolute mess of a year. Because I've spent almost the entire year not knowing what to do. Not knowing the right thing to do. Not knowing how to do it. And not knowing if I was capable of doing the thing that needed to be done that I didn't know what it was. Maybe you felt that way too. And in a lot of respects, I think 2020 to me feels the way that Judges feels. But that's okay. Because the lesson of the book of Judges has taught us something that I think is relevant for all time, but especially for us right now. If you remember, there's been one major idea that we've been covering as our time has progressed through the book of Judges. It's this. When I'm with God... I'm a hero. When I'm not, I'm a villain. You see, our big question is, am I capable enough? But if I'm with God, then I'm capable enough because I'm with him. And and my question is, I don't know what I need to do, but if I'm with God, then I just need to follow his lead. And I'm pretty confident that he's going to be doing the right thing. And so I can be confident that I'm doing the right thing as long as I'm with God. But when I'm not with God, no matter what I think I'm doing, no matter how good I think that thing is, and no matter how capable I feel I am, I'm actually the villain of the story. Because the true hero, as we've seen time and time again in the book, the true hero is God. We, we're more like under-heroes. What would you call an underhero. Well, let's just be honest. It's a sidekick. I know a lot of us like to feel heroic. And when we think of the famous sidekicks, the only one I can actually really think of, because I was never really a comic buff, the only sidekick I can really think of is Robin. You know, Batman and Robin? And let's just face it, 
Did Robin ever do anything significant? I mean, he came up with funny little quips in the old, you know, TV show. But was he even a hero? You know, it doesn't even matter. Because when you're with the hero, you're a hero. Even if you're only a sidekick, you're part of a heroic team. And as we finish today, as we finish the book of Judges today, I want to encourage you that the best place for you possibly to be is in a sidekick relationship with God, your true hero. Now, we've covered a lot of ground in the book of Judges. We've seen a lot of mistakes in the book of Judges. We've seen the people be heroes. We've seen the people be villains. We've seen all these things. But remember, the end of the book gives us the moral of the whole book. It says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The moral of the story, the moral of the book of Judges, is that without a king, we're left to our own devices. And you've seen it time and time again in this book, that without a king, our own ideas of what's right and wrong falls way, way short. The last story in the book of Judges is the three chapters, 19, 20, and 21. And in these final three chapters, we read one long, sad story. It's the second of the two epilogues of the book, but what makes this second epilogue interesting is that it actually happened at the very beginning of the time of Judges. The second epilogue is like a flashback. We know that because there's a reference to Phineas being the priest at the time. We'll see that in a little bit, but Phineas is the priest at the time. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. So Aaron was the first ever high priest. And then his son, Eleazar, had a son named Phineas, and Phineas is the priest at this time of the story. That means Joshua might still be alive. That means Joshua, if he's dead, he's just recently died, and it's the early, early, early days of the judges. And so what we're really seeing is that from the very first moment of the judges, they got off to a really bad start, a really terrible start. So Judges 19, 20, and 21 are a flashback to the beginning of the period of the Judges. And the writer of this book put the story in here because he wants us definitely to know that even from the beginning, they were a messed up group of people. Let me take you into it. If you got it, Judges chapter 19. I'm going to jump around. I'm going to skip some verses. I'm going to read some important bits, but when we're covering three chapters... In this video format, I I don't want to read the entire thing, so I'm going to skip a little bit, try to follow along. In those days, Israel had no king. Again, this is the theme that begins this section. Now, a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to pause there for just a little bit to remind you that Levites were supposed to be the people who um, God was their inheritance. They didn't need land. They didn't need property. They didn't need anything else because they were the people who were supposed to be in a special relationship with God himself. As a matter of fact, the Levites were the people from whom the priests would come. 
And that means this guy is supposed to be in a good relationship with God. But we find out from the very beginning of the story that he's got a concubine. We don't hear anything about his wife if he had a wife. We don't hear anything about his children if he had a children, if he had children. We only know that he had a concubine. And so I'll remind you that a concubine is not a wife. A concubine is a sexual slave. A concubine is a woman that you own and that you use for sex. Now, there are some times in this passage where he's referred to as her husband, but he always refers to her as his concubine. In other words, he doesn't see her as his wife. He doesn't view her with any respect really at all. She's just a servant he has sex with. So it's no surprise when we read the next thing. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. Something about her situation made her think she didn't want to be with this guy anymore. And so maybe her unfaithfulness was that she ran away. Maybe her unfaithfulness is that she slept with someone else. She had an adulterous relationship with someone else. I'm not exactly sure which one it is, but nonetheless, she's sick and tired of living with this Levite. So she runs home. She goes back to her parents' home and the guy chases after her after a while It says, after she'd been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. That means he didn't even bring enough donkeys for her to ride one back. Someone's going to be walking back. Anyway, she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. Now, I'm just going to kind of narrate for you what happens here. So he shows up. The dad loves him for some reason. I don't know why. But the dad loves him, brings him in, and the two of them party for a week. We are told, especially in the story, that the two guys, the Levite and the dad, party for a week. Every single morning, they wake up and they celebrate with food. And then in the afternoon, the dad says, stay a little longer. And so he spends the night. And so even though there's a servant and even though there's a concubine, and even though I'm sure there are other people in the household too, it's just these two guys who keep enjoying themselves and their little party time with each other for a whole week. And the guy says, okay, he wakes up on the fourth day. He says, it's time for me to leave. The dad says, no, hang out. So he does. The fifth day he gets up and he says, okay, it's time for me to leave. And the dad says, no, go ahead and stay. So he stays. But anyway, the afternoon of the fifth day, the Levite says, no, I really need to go. And so the dad says, okay, go ahead and go. And so he packs up everything. He packs up his concubine. He packs up his servant, his donkeys and all of his stuff. And he heads out. And on his way out, it's already late in the day. And you don't travel late in the day. You don't travel at night because back then, bad people were on the journey late at night and they would rob you or kill you or something else. And so anyway, this is not a wise move that he's stepping out late at night. But he goes on his journey and he's in Bethlehem and he journeys northwards about six miles to the city that we call Jerusalem. But back then only Jebusites were living there. In fact, the city's name was Jebus or Jebus or Yebus or something like that. 
And so the Jebusites are living there and the servant says to the guy, hey, we should stop here for the night because it's getting late. And the guy says, no, we're not going to spend the night in a city where Israelites don't live. We're going to go to an Israelite town because they're our family. So he goes a little farther, four miles farther. It's only been 10 miles from Bethlehem to this next city. And he goes a little bit farther to a city called Gibeah. And in Gibeah, in the region of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, the Benjamites lived there, he stops in the town square of Gibeah, because it's now too late to travel, and he's there in the town square, and no one takes him in. Back in the ancient Near East, hospitality was a major thing. If you saw someone in your town square, you were obligated to take them in, but no one takes them in. Until finally, an old man shows up, and he happens to be from Ephraim, also, the Levites from Ephraim. And so the old man shows up and he's just come in from working in the fields. And he says to this guy, are you um, staying here for the night? The guy says, I'm from Ephraim. The old man says, okay, come and stay with me. So then he stays with the old man. But it says this, while they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. Now, that is a bad story. That is a bad situation. The guy made a bad decision leaving the father's house late in the day. He made a bad decision stopping in Gibeah. And now the old man has got this guy in his house, and the people of the house are pounding on the door, asking for this old man to send out this younger guy so they can rape him. This is a terrible situation. He thought he'd be safe by being in an Israelite town, but no, the men of Gibeah are clearly evil. The men of Gibeah have clearly gone off into, maybe this is a a, a worship of Baal, some fertility god, religion that they're trying to do. I don't know what it is. It's very similar to what Lot experienced in the city of Sodom near Gomorrah where some angels visited Lot and the men of Sodom came to Lot's house and said, let these guys out so we can have sex with them. And listen, it's just a mess. But look what happens next. What would you do, by the way, in the situation? What would you do? Would you let the visitor out? Would you give him to the people? What would you do? It says this, the owner of the house went outside and said to, he went outside. Okay, now hang on. These men are obviously violent. They are coming from Gibeah, the city around where this man is living. They are pounding on the door, and the owner of the house goes outside. What is that? Something doesn't make sense to me with regard to this. The old man apparently is not afraid of these guys doing something to him because he just voluntarily goes outside. Secondly, the men who are pounding on the door don't rush inside when the door opens. It's like there's some sort of polite relationship here. Yeah, pounding on the door, but there's some sort of polite relationship here between the old man and these friends. Anyway, he says, no, my friends, he calls them friends here. And maybe he's just pandering. Maybe it's just flattery trying to get him to be nice. I'm not exactly sure, but he calls them friends. He says, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Since he's my guest. As if the fact the guy was his guest is the reason to not rape him. 
that doesn't even make sense to me logically. These people are coming from a different worldview. I don't even really understand it, but it gets worse. I mean, what would you do in this situation? Well, look what the old man does in this situation. He says, look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. What in the world? The old man, first of all, he's got a virgin daughter. He's an old man. How does he have a virgin daughter? Is she too ugly to get married? Does she have some other problem where where she can't get married? Or does the old man just not let her get married? I don't know. But he's got a virgin daughter somehow. And now he's giving his virgin daughter to the men of the town and saying, no, take this woman and take this other woman and sleep with them. You can use them and do to them whatever you wish, but don't do what you want to do to this man. Don't do such an outrageous thing. Sure, abuse two women. Just don't abuse this man. Now, maybe this is a commentary on the difference between heterosexual rape and homosexual rape, as if homosexual rape is somehow worse than heterosexual rape. But from my perspective, I look at it and I'm saying it's all outrageous. Well, it doesn't work. It says the men would not listen to him. So the man, now talking about the Levite inside, the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them and they raped her and abused her throughout the night and at dawn they let her go. So the Levite, well, he's got a sex slave. Why not just send her out? And so he does. It gets worse. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying. Doesn't say husband. You notice that? Master. Where her master was staying. Fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. Somehow, the Levite, after sending his concubine out into the town square, Hearing her screams, hearing the men doing whatever they're doing, the Levite must have gone back inside and fell asleep. Because it says, at daybreak she went back to the house and laid there until daylight. The sun is just beginning to crack above the horizon. It's just beginning to get light and the men leave her alone. And she crawls her way back to the house. But no one answers the door. She just lays there. The sun comes all the way up. And then finally, it says this, When her master got up in the morning, eventually, and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way. He's planning to just do his thing, to just go on his way. As far as he's concerned, she's already dead. Eh, it's fine. It's fine. Whatever. I just left her dad. I was partying with her dad for the last week. I just left her dad a couple hours ago. But you know what? It's fine. She's dead now. I'm just going to continue on my way. But there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house house with her hands on the threshold. She had made it all the way back, maybe scratching the door, maybe knocking on the door. She had made it all the way back to the door, but no one answered the door. And then just 
to demonstrate how insensitive this guy is, it says, he said to her, get up, let's go. How insensitive. But of course, there was no answer. So then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. It's a terrible story. And it gets worse. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. There are 12 tribes in Israel. He cut the woman up into 12 pieces and distributed them throughout the nation. And everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. Even at that moment. Even at that moment, these people, they're like, this is outrageous. This is terrible. But we don't know what to do. This is outrageous. This is terrible. But would someone just speak up and tell us what we're supposed to do? What would you do? Were any of these decisions a decision you might have made? Well, the next chapter tells us what they eventually did. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people of the tribes of Israel took their places in the assembly of God's people, 400,000 men armed with swords. 400,000, they are ready for battle of some kind. It also says the Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. Now, the Benjamites are Israelites, but in this story, they get separated from them in the way they're talking about because there's Benjamin, the people who are descendant of Benjamin, and all the other Israelites. And the Benjamites heard about this gathering at Mizpah. They've clearly gotten one of the pieces of this woman, and they heard about the gathering. They've heard about the gathering at Mizpah, but apparently they did not go. Because the next sentence says, Then the Israelites said, Tell us how this awful thing happened. The Benjamites are not there. The rest of Israel is. And so the Levite, the husband, oh, now it's husband, huh? Of the murdered woman said, I and my concubine, see, he doesn't even give her credit. There, he still is calling her concubine, came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house, intending to kill me. That's not exactly accurate, and he leaves out the part where he sends his concubine out to them voluntarily. But he does include this. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now all you Israelites speak up and tell me what you've decided to do. Again, no one is taking the lead here. He's just simply saying, I don't know what to do. You tell me what you've decided to do. This is one of the dilemmas that uh, they've faced all throughout the book of Judges. Who knows the right thing to do? Well, anyway, what they decide to do is to attack the city of Gibeah. Because they need to do something about it. 
Skip ahead to verse 12 in chapter 20. It says, The tribes of Israel sent messengers throughout the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What about this awful crime that was committed among you? Now turn those wicked men of Gibeah over to us so that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. And here, I need to pause just to point this out to you. The phrase, purge the evil from Israel, is a very important phrase. Because that is the first time in this story we are seeing something that is clearly a God's will kind of thing. The Levite having a concubine is not necessarily a God's will kind of thing. There's, there's no clarity in the Old Testament about when a Levite should take a concubine or if he ever should, you know, that kind of stuff. God clearly did not like the idea of sex slaves. And so that it happened was a bad thing to begin with. But here we actually get a picture of them paying attention to God's word because the the concept of purging the evil from Israel is from Moses' law. Moses had said that if there was evil among you, you needed to kill the people guilty of it so that you could eradicate and purge the evil from the land of Israel. If there was a murder, if there was adultery, if there was a person worshiping a foreign god, if someone was violating one of these egregious laws, they were people who needed to be put to death so that the evil could be purged from Israel. The people of Israel are actually doing the right thing here. They're like, give us the people of Gibeah, just the wicked men of Gibeah, so that we can put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. It's right. It's good. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. From their towns, they came together at Gibeah to fight against the Israelites. At once, the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. Okay, so now we've got it. There are 400,000 from the rest of the tribes who are ready to fight this much, much smaller 20-some thousand group of people from Benjamin. And then we read this. The Israelites went up to Bethel and inquired of God. They said, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Benjamites? The Lord replied, Judah shall go first. Now, what's interesting here is that they actually did inquire of God. You see, at the time, as we're going to see in just a few verses, the ark of God was at Bethel. And Phinehas, the priest, grandson of Aaron, the high priest, Phinehas was the leader at Bethel over the ark. And so when they inquire of the Lord, they're really inquiring of the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has has his ark present in Bethel and his priest there giving guidance. And so they're doing the right thing. And they really do hear God's voice saying, Judah shall go first. This is abundantly clear. They are following Moses' law to purge the evil. They are doing the right thing by talking to God about it first. God gives them a clear answer. Judah shall go first. And let's see what happens. The next morning, the Israelites got up and pitched camp near Gibeah. The Israelites went out to fight the Benjamites and took up battle positions against them at Gibeah. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. 
But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they'd stationed themselves the first day. The Benjamites killed 22,000 Israelites. It says the Israelites went up and wept before the Lord until evening and they inquired of the Lord, yeah, I would too. I'd be like, God, you told me to do this. And God would be, what? Well, let's see. They said, shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites? And the Lord answered, go up against them. So the first day they heard God's voice and yet they failed miserably. They heard God say, go. So they go and then they get absolutely demolished, losing 20,000. They come back together and say, well, maybe we were wrong. Let's ask God again. And God says, yes, go up against them. Look what it says. Then the Israelites drew near to Benjamin the second day. This time when the Benjamites came out from Gibeah to oppose them, they cut down another 18,000 Israelites, all of them armed with swords. Then all the Israelites, the whole army went up to Bethel and there they sat weeping before the Lord. I would too. I'd be like, God, we did it a second time. You told us to do it a second time. We're following your law. We're going against these people like you told us to do. And the second day, like you told us to do. And yet we have lost 40,000 people so far. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. And the Israelites inquired of the Lord. Now the author of Judges knows that maybe you and I are doubting that it's really God speaking to them. And so he says this, In those days the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. This is the ark. This is the real priest. These are really God's words. And they ask, Shall we go up again to fight against the Benjamites, our fellow Israelites, or not. They're giving God an out here. They're saying, God, you could just tell us to go home. Let's Maybe we should just give up on this. But the Lord responded, go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. So they do. They go again. Then Israel set an ambush around Gibeah. They went up against the Benjamites on the third day and took up positions against Gibeah as they had done before. But this time they're doing it slightly differently. They've set up an ambush. Watch what happens. It says, The Benjamites came out to meet them and were drawn away from the city. They began to inflict casualties on the Israelites as before, so that about 30, that's a, that's a very small number now, only 30, about 30 men fell in the open field and on the roads, the one leading to Bethel and the other to Gibeah. While the Benjamites were saying, We are defeating them as before, the Israelites were saying, Let's retreat and draw them away from the city to the roads. So they had set up an ambush around the city of Gibeah. They went to fight the city of Gibeah. The Benjamites come out, they start fighting, they kill 30 of the Israelites, more death, but the Israelites use that death to draw the Benjamites away from the city. Skip ahead to verse 37. It says, those who'd been in ambush made a sudden dash into Gibeah, spread out, and put the whole city to the sword. The Israelites had arranged with the ambush that they should send up a great cloud of smoke from the city, and then the Israelites would counterattack. 
The Benjamites had begun to inflict casualties on the Israelites, about 30, and they said, we're defeating them as in the first battle. But when the column of smoke began to rise from the city, the Benjamites turned and saw the whole city going up in smoke. Then the Israelites counterattacked, and the Benjamites were terrified because they realized that disaster had come on them. So they fled before the Israelites in the direction of the wilderness, but they could not escape the battle. And the Israelites who came out of the towns cut them down there. They surrounded the Benjamites, chased them, and easily overran them in the vicinity of Gibeah on the east. 18,000 Benjamites fell, all of them valiant fighters. As they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, the Israelites cut down 5,000 men along the roads. They kept pressing after the Benjamites as far as Gidom and struck down 2,000 more. On that day, 25,000 Benjamite swordsmen fell, all of them valiant fighters, but 600 of them turned and fled into the wilderness to the rock of Rimmon, where they stayed four months. The men of Israel went back to Benjamin and put all the towns to the sword. Wait! They put Gibeah to the sword, but now they go through all the towns of Benjamin and put all of them to the sword, including the animals and everything else they found? All the towns they came across, they set on fire? That doesn't make sense. Listen, there's a lot of this story that actually does make sense. A lot of this story that actually does fall in line with God's will. I'll just list off some of the things for you. First of all, the men of Gibeah were guilty. They did deserve death. We've already covered that. They were literally wicked people who deserved death. And the Benjamites made it worse. They were guilty by loyalty. And so they entered into this warfare and they also needed to be defeated. And so God said, yes, attack them. Yes, attack them three times. And then you might be saying, but wait a minute. We're doing this stuff because God told us to. God told us three times that we were supposed to purge Israel. We're following God's law with that. God told us three times that we're supposed to fight the people of Benjamin who are complicit by their loyalty to this. And so why are people dead? Well, this is another lesson that actually I think God wants us to learn. The Israelite deaths prove that righteousness is costly. You see... God tells us to do the right thing. He doesn't tell us the right thing will be easy. God tells us to do the right thing. He doesn't tell us that the right thing won't cost. And here the people of Israel have suffered. This is amazing. One woman died. One concubine died. And now, because of that one concubine, 40,000 Israelites have died, and over 20,000 Benjamites have died in this civil war conflict. This is ludicrous. This is difficult for us to rationalize. But it's the same truth that we've seen time and time again. For God, evil really is that bad. And so one woman dying is an evil that cannot be paid back by someone else dying. It's just evil. And the people needed to purge the evil from their land. And so the Israelite deaths here prove that righteousness is costly. And then there's that other little piece where they go back into Gibeah and they burn everything as part of the ambush. Even that 
can be biblically justified. The town was guilty, and in fact, from one perspective, the town deserved to burn. Back in Deuteronomy, Moses wrote this, If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that troublemakers have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you've not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it's true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. You must destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. You are to gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. That town is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt. You see, in Deuteronomy 13, there was actually a law about a town that goes rogue, a town where evil people in the town have led the other people of the town to be complicit in their evilness. And if that happens, then the whole town gets burned. Now, maybe you could say that all of the other Benjamite towns are just as guilty as Gibeah, but that's a hard thing to believe. See, my question is still these two things. What about the 600 soldiers they let live? If they're supposed to burn the entire town, if they're supposed to defeat all of the evil, what about the 600 soldiers they let live? I mean, sure, they escaped and they hid, but they let them live there for four months. And then, what about the other towns they destroyed? You, yeah, maybe you've got a reason to say that destruction of the other towns was as justified as the destruction of Gibeah, but maybe you can't. They destroyed all of the other towns. It feels to me like maybe that's going a little bit too far. I, I don't know. How do you judge whether or not they made the right decision or the wrong decision? Because when it comes to letting the 600 men live, they didn't ask God about that. When it comes to destroying all the other towns, they didn't ask God about that either. Well, we find out it causes problems for them. Both of those things end up causing problems for them in the last section of this story. I'm going to skip ahead. Chapter 21, verse 6, it says, Now the Israelites grieved for the tribe of Benjamin, their fellow Israelites. Today one tribe is cut off from Israel, they said. How can we provide wives for those who are left, since we've taken an oath by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Okay, so what you didn't see, what I skipped over, is the fact that these guys made an actual oath. We've already seen how bad vows can be in the book of Judges, but they made an oath that they would not let any Benjamite have one of their daughters in marriage. But now they have killed all of the Benjamite women, and they've killed all the Benjamite children, and they've burned all the Benjamite towns, and now there are 600 Benjamites left. Logically, you would say either everybody deserves to die, or they should have let some of the women live. But they didn't. They killed them all. And now they've got a dilemma. There's 600 Benjamites who are still alive that they don't want to kill, but all the women are dead. And so now what do they do? Do we let the tribe of Benjamin, because they know these guys are going to marry people. So do we let them marry Canaanite women? Do we allow some Israelite to break his vow and let them have one of his daughters? 
No. They do something even worse. Check this out. Then they asked, which one of the tribes of Israel failed to assemble before the Lord at Mizpah? Duh. The answer is Beth, is, is Benjamin. When they gathered at Mizpah, all the Israelites were there except for the Benjamite tribe. But they did discover that no one from Jabesh Gilead, which is not a tribe, by the way, it's a city, but no one from Jabesh Gilead had come to the camp for the assembly. For when they counted the people, they found that none of the people of Jabesh Gilead were there. Well, Jabesh Gilead didn't help out. Jabesh Gilead missed the meeting. So the assembly sent 12,000 fighting men with instructions to go to Jabesh Gilead and put to the sword those living there, including the women and children. This is what you're to do, they said. Kill every male and every woman who's not a virgin. They found among the people living in Jabesh Gilead 400 young women who had never slept with a man. And they took them to the camp at Shiloh in Canaan. Then the whole assembly sent an offer of peace to the Benjamites at the Rock of Rimmon. So the Benjamites returned at that time and were given the women of Jabesh Gilead who had been spared. But there were not enough for all of them. So here, we can't give them any of our daughters, but if we kill all of these women's fathers, then we can steal the leftover virgins and give them to the men of Benjamin. But there's only 400 of them, and there's 600 men of Benjamin, and so there aren't enough women for all of them. What are they going to do now? Skip ahead to verse 16. It says, And the elders of the assembly said, With the women of Benjamin destroyed, how shall we provide wives for the men who are left? But look, verse 19, there's the annual festival of the Lord in Shiloh, which lies north of Bethel, east of the road that goes from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. So they instructed the Benjamites, saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you seize one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. What a great idea. Just kidnap your woman. No man is giving you his daughter if you do it that way and we don't even have to kill anyone to make it happen just steal a lady for yourself so that's what the benjamites did while the young women were dancing each man caught one and carried her off to be his wife then they returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and settled in them and they all lived happily ever after it's a creepy way to end a story but there are actually a couple lines left let me show you At that time, the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You need to know that the author of the book of Judges puts this last line in there as a judgment. He wants us to know that these people in the book of Judges are hopelessly lost. They keep trying to do the right thing. Sometimes they get it. and A lot of times they don't. And when they get it, they're heroes. And when they don't, they're absolute villains. They're just doing what they think is right. They're doing the best thing they know how to do. 
They're making it up as they go along. Sometimes they're following God's law. Sometimes they're listening to God's voice. But most of the time, they're just doing whatever feels right to them. Whatever seems right at the moment. And it's because they have no king. There's no real hero guarding them, guiding them. There's no real authority figure helping them identify what needs to be done and how to do it and when to do it and why to do it. You see, the conclusion of this story is the point of the entire book. I'll give it to you in long form here. Individual people do what they think is right, but they keep making terrible choices when they don't have a king. Sadly, this is still true for us today. You, me, all of us. We're just individual people. And, and when we live our lives, we generally do it doing what we think is right. I think it's right for me to do this particular thing. When someone yells at me, I think it's right to yell back at them. When someone treats me like I'm stupid, I think it's right to treat them like they're stupid. When someone disrespects me, I think it's right to disrespect them back. There are all kinds of ways where I think things are right, but in the doing of them, I'm the villain. Individual people, just like you and me, do what they think is right, but they keep making terrible choices when they don't have a king. You see, the story of the book of Judges is trying to convince us that no matter how heroic any of these people look, they're also terribly, terribly flawed because they don't have any governing principle in their lives. They are not in submission to God himself as their king, and they don't have an earthly king who can help them be in submission. But you know what God's idea of a king is? Oh, early on, yeah, it seems like God didn't want them to have a king because he set them up with a priest. But way back in the days of Moses, he actually gave them instructions on what having a king would be like. And if you summarize all of what God says about having a king, it basically comes into four things. God's idea of a king is someone who knows righteousness, someone who models righteousness, someone who teaches righteousness, and someone who enforces righteousness. Someone who knows what's right, models what's right, teaches what's right, and enforces what's right. This is God's idea of a king. And when these people don't have someone who knows what's right, and models what's right, and teaches what's right, and enforces what's right, then they just do what they think is right. And when they do what they think is right, they end up making terrible choices. 2020 has been a dumpster fire of a year, largely because everywhere we look, we find someone who thinks they're doing the right thing. They think they're protesting for the right reason. They think they are posting to social media the right thing for the right reason. They think they are voting for a person for the right motives and the right reasons. They think they are wearing a mask or not wearing a mask for the right reasons. They think they are responding to the current tragedies of our society for the right reasons. But we human beings never do it right. We human beings think we're right way more than we are. And we keep making terrible choices. 
And so as you look around 2020, what you see over and over and over and over and over again is a person who thinks they're doing the right thing, but they're making terrible choices. It's because we, just like them, desperately need a king. In Jeremiah, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. Even after Israel got a king, they still didn't have a good one. And so God made a promise one of these days. One of these days, I will raise up an actual righteous king who will reign wisely and do righteousness and enforce righteousness. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. Now, that's interesting. God the Almighty is saying one of these days he's going to rise, raise up a king. And the king's name will be the Lord, our righteous Savior. Which makes a lot of sense if you realize that kings are often called Lord. Where it doesn't make sense is if you realize that those letters in Lord are all capitalized. They're capitalized because in the original Hebrew language, it wasn't the word for Lord. It was the four letters Y-H-W-H. It was the four letters that possibly were pronounced Yahweh, the name God gave himself when he spoke to Moses through the burning bush. This is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh, our righteous Savior. One of these days, God is going to raise up a king, and that king will get it right. And his name will be the same word that came out of the burning bush. Yahweh, our righteous Savior. See, it's the thing I've been saying all along. The true hero of the story isn't any one of these people. The true hero of the story of Judges, the true hero of the story of the Bible, the true hero of the story of you and me is Yahweh, God. And one of these days, God will send a king who will be called God, who will be called Lord. Obviously, you should know that's Jesus. Jesus, the king who dies for his subjects. I want to encourage you to take a lesson from the book of Judges as seriously as you can. You might think you're doing the right thing. This month, this week, this year, you might think you're doing the right thing. You might think you're doing it for the right reasons. You might think that your angle is the right angle. You might think your opinion is the right opinion. You might think that you are right. Because as human beings, we always see what's right from our own eyes. We always see what's right from our own perspective. But all of that is fraudulent and false because we don't ever get it right. We need a king who gets it right. 
And so I implore you to take a lesson from the book of Judges. Stop trying to be the hero. Let someone else be the hero. You just be the sidekick. I'll put it to you this way. King Jesus is the hero. I'm his sidekick. That's not a bad place to be. But just to be really practical, I'm going to take it all the way back to something I learned a long, long time ago. WWJD. It goes like this. What would Jesus do? But more than that, I want to give you three things to think about. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus say? And what would Jesus do? If you don't know the answer to those things, it's printed for us in the Gospels. You could open up Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You could open up Revelation at the end of the Bible, and you could open up many different places in the middle of the New Testament where you would find what Jesus actually thinks and what Jesus actually said and what Jesus actually does. And so what situation are you facing this week? What is your dilemma? What is your question? What am I supposed to be doing in this circumstance? What am I supposed to be doing with regard to that? How should I view masks? How should I view the election? How should I view politics? How should I view my relationships? How should should I view other people? How should I view the stuff that I'm dealing with right now? The answers, my friends, are there for us. What would Jesus think? What would Jesus say? What would Jesus do? Because he's the king. And your ideas and my ideas are terrible. But if he's the king and he's the hero... And I'm the sidekick? That's a good place to be. Friends, I highly encourage you to live like a sidekick this week. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.